0: I want to offer a prayer this evening. Mm -hmm. I pray that we will be rightly guided. That this will be a time of blessing and that we will increase our understanding and decrease our fear. That love will be apparent and guide our way now and in the important peacemaking work ahead. I ask that our hearts and minds be open for whatever truth needs to touch our lives. And I give thanks for this wonderful opportunity to be together. So Steve will speak out of the silence. And and we look forward to it. Thank you, Steve
1: you I want to put the silence a little bit a bit into the talk because I think there's a really important moment so this talk was scheduled before October um, 7th and uh, originally the title was um, is it apartheid reflections of a, on a Quaker delegation to Israel and Palestine. And that will be a significant theme tonight. But the shockwaves of anger, fear, or that have erupted since the vicious mass murdering attack of Hamas in southern Israel, and then the response of collective punishment to 2.2 million people in Gaza has um, just made this really, really a charged time. And I, I want to get to some of the background of what I think that, of how, you know, why there's a need for uh, really working for peace with justice on the long term, as well as addressing the current situation. In the meeting at Friends Meeting of Washington, there is a newly married couple that is very dear to us in the meeting. One is a liberal Zionist Jew, the husband. And the wife is a Palestinian-American who graduated from the Ramallah Friends School that Chris mentioned. And they are in love. And they travel to Israel and Palestine together. They talk a lot about it. And since October 7th, they have shared with a number of us the pain of being in love in this time. And the husband as a liberal Zionist who does not like the military occupation and suspects it has risen to the level of apartheid, um, still very much wants Israel to be a vibrant community and to be safe. And his natural tendency was to, to feel for the victims in southern Israel. And more intellectually, yeah. It shouldn't be happening. What's happening in Gaza? The the wife had her natural affinity of like I feel intensely the pain of the Palestinian civilians, two point two million who are being kept without water, food, uh, medicine, electricity, and she had to stretch the empathy. Um, though she got it, but it was just that and. I'm just happy to report they're still in love. Um, And they've expanded their hearts. And so I wanted to start today with just a moment of silence for everybody who's suffering. Let's see. And the suffering is great. And um, I think... Before I talk about analysis, vision, and strategy of the current situation and its history and where we might go, I just think we have to open our hearts to everybody who's suffering. So this is an acute crisis. So let's just have time for a little prayerful reflection. Thank you, friends. So in the very challenging presentation I did of this um, in Montclair, where there was wide diversity and people had tried to cancel the talk at the library, I wanted to start with sharing common ground. And there's also diversity of perspectives among Quakers and interfaith people, so I think Our analysis, vision, and strategy might be different and we can learn from each other and our differences, but I think it's important to share the common ground. So I wanted to share the spiritual wisdom of a Palestinian village priest that we went and he said something so lovely to the Quaker delegation. Um, He said, it doesn't matter if your name is Moshi, Mohammed, or Matthew. But we are all beloved by God, and we all deserve to live with peace, security, equality, and freedom. And I think everybody in our group said amen. And I think regardless of the differences that we may have, I think this is pretty widespread. And so today at the Montclair uh, Library, I just asked people to raise their hands. If they agreed with this statement, and everybody did, and that was a beautiful moment and they looked around and people who disagreed about a lot of things agreed with this um, and I used to think, you know no country is perfect; there are countries that have horrible human rights records get better, get worse um And I used to think that Israel wasn't a perfect country, but I thought it pretty much embodied this, which comes out of the Jewish prophetic tradition and ethics and and was an ardent Zionist and a complete supporter of of Israel when I was a teenager and 20. But more and more progressive um, Jewish friends of mine were going and spending long periods of time and visiting Israel. And they came back talking about there's so much they loved about it. Just the immensity of Jewish culture was fantastic, but they were also really worried and they felt like that we had to seriously consider Palestinian rights. And I had not thought about that for a long time. And one of my friends gave me this quote from Moshe Dayan. And the more I've studied, I think this is the dominant message over time to Palestinians since at least 67 military occupation of the rest of the 22% um, of historic Palestine that wasn't Israel after the armistice in in 48. Um, And I found this shocking. and I'm just going to read it out loud. You can all see it. But he was speaking towards the, you know, in, in public to a Palestinian audience. We have no solution. You shall continue to live like dogs and ever whoever wishes may leave, And we will see where the process leads. And since 1967, we have seen where the process leads since October 7th. We have seen it as an acute crisis of mass murder on on both sides, but at very different scales. So the choice we have is more mass murder and seeking the negative piece of the graveyard where you somehow kill everybody who is your enemy um, and who might be in the future. This is not the Quaker way. The other choice of what now is to de escalate the current crisis, but go deeper and address the underlying conflict in order to achieve positive peace. And there's sort of three elements that major Quaker organizations around the world have really stood up for very clearly, and I'm grateful for their leadership. Um, first, is ceasefire now, you know, just stop the mass murder. Second, the 240 captives that are now in Gaza—we have to figure out a negotiated way to release them safely um, and not endanger them with constant bombardment and keeping them for a long time in in Hamas's hands, not knowing quite what they would do. And of course, restoring humanitarian aid to 2.2 million civilians in Gaza who are being collectively punished, over a million being displaced. Um, There are factions within the current state of Israel that wants to drive everybody into the Sinai in Egypt and not let Gazans back. Hopefully, that won't happen and other heads, wiser heads will prevail. So those are the three things that I think can help as we move and push you, you know U.S. policy towards this because the U.S. is the greatest enabler of the current um, atrocities that are happening in, in Gaza and in some in the West Bank. But the fourth point, I think, is a really important one, and it gets to why our experience with Max and Jane for close to three weeks in June of this year uh, addresses. And this is the question of, there's not really going to be peace and security with justice until we end the Israeli military occupation of the West Bank, Gaza, and and East Jerusalem. the apartheid system and negotiate a just peace. And there's a variety of formulas of w- what that could be. Many international, you, you, it might be controversial among the people here, whether it really is an apartheid um, uh, state, many international human rights, uh, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, and then Bet Salome, which is a, is a Jewish Israeli human rights group came out with a report explaining why they thought it was apartheid. So I think it's important whether you agree or disagree with that. What is the legal definition of the crime of apartheid under international human rights law? And I put on sort of the, the left of my screen the dictionary definition, and you notice it says South Africa. And South Africa was one form of apartheid, but there's other forms. And South Africa it was a small minority that dominated a majority that it wasn't trying to drive away, but wanted to continue exploiting in perpetuity. Um, that's a different situation um, where, you know, part of the drive of political Zionism has been to Take over as much land as possible in historic Palestine with as few Palestinians in it as possible. So that's a little different. But the common thread to whatever variety of apartheid is, is these three points, according to um, international law and human rights statutes an intent to maintain domination, a context for systematic oppression and inhuman acts. There's a lot of disagreement about this. These are some reports, you know, disagreeing with the analysis of apartheid. And then back when we came back in June, I think it was in a week or two that the House of Representatives had this very lopsided vote vote saying Israel is, is not a racist or apartheid state. And only nine people in the House of Representatives said they thought it was. So, you know, one context of our trip, I think, is U.S. Quakers and other people of other faith traditions going to the West Bank and then spending some time in Jerusalem and going to the north of, of Israel to sort of see for ourselves, you know, to see firsthand whether we agreed with the analysis of international human rights groups or whether you know we would have a different analysis, and I love this picture. It's our group with um, people from the Ramallah Friends Meeting in the Ramallah Friends Meeting House that was built, I think. Um, And Jane and Max, it's lovely to have you on here. So when we get to the Q&A, if I get some of the facts wrong, you let me know. But I think it was built in 1910 during the World First World War. I think it was taken over by the British and turned into an officer's club. So it was a bar. And then after World War One, they gave it back to Palestinian friends. But you can see the people from uh, the delegation. We ranged in age, I think, from 17 to at least the upper 70s. And it was a a great group of people. And in terms of this map, we didn't go to Gaza. Um, We were in the West Bank. We visited lots of villages, but spent a lot of time in Ramallah, some time in Jericho, and in Bethlehem, and Nablus. We tried to go to Janine, but I'll explain why we we didn't get there. And then we spent a few days in the old city and around in Jerusalem, and then we traveled north um, through the Galilee, but also up to a kibbutz on the Lebanese-Israeli border. Um, And so we, you know, got some diverse perspectives from different people. Now, I just want to say that you know the obvious thing is why would Quakers go there? It's we have a long-standing uh, peace testimony. We care about human rights. We like resolving conflicts and, and being helpful. Um, we want to look at facts and understand situation. But Quakers have, as Chris. Um, suggested we have real skin in the game for a long time for communities that exist in this tiny area of the world. And it goes back to US, British, and German Quakers supported persecuted Jews in a number of ways. And there's a great book for people who want to look at the, the German version of this is called Quakers and Nazis, a great book. Um, and then there's other books about US and British friends lobbying their governments, the Britain government and the US government for mass immigration to the US and Britain of anybody who was endangered during the rise of uh, the Nazi regime in Germany and then as they expanded and worked with Jew- a coalition with Jewish groups Um, The head of AFSC was asked to be the head of the coalition uh, for in US, worked enormously hard to get rid of the quotas that were limiting the amount of immigration. And they were ultimately unsuccessful. One of the reasons was the anti-immigrant bias of many people in America and during a time of just coming out of a a depression. Another reason was flat out anti-Jewish bigotry in the United States. Um, What I didn't know till about a few months ago was key Zionist lobbyists and organizations were lobbying against the US and Britain letting mass immigration to uh, have safety for Jews if that's where they wanted to go, because a lot of them didn't want to go to Palestine. Some did, some didn't. Other people wanted to go to, to Britain or Union. And I was just a little shocked that Zionist lobbyists were uh, p- pushing back uh, on this policy that like Quakers and many Jewish groups were doing. And then I in this book that I read, you got some sense of that. So David Ben-Gurion, for those who don't know, was a pre-state Zionist leader in Palestine, and he became the first prime minister of the new state of Israel. Kind of an amazing leader in a lot of ways, had enormous amount of chutzpah and strategic savvy and put this together. But Here's some reasoning about why Zionists would try try to block immigration to the United States or Britain. Here's what he said in 1937. If I knew that it was possible to save all the Jewish children in Germany by transporting them to Britain, but only half of them by transporting them to Palestine, I would choose the second. Nothing breaks precedence over saving the Hebrew nation in its land. And so the goal of an ethno-nationalist state, as much as it pained him, was more important even if it cost half of the Jewish children's lives. And that's, that's sort of understandable but really troubling. Um, Quakers also have a long history in Palestine that predates the founding of Israel, 48. we uh, 1869, the Ramallah Friends School got started first as a good girl school, then it became uh, co-ed, and the lower campus is for the younger grades, and the upper campus is now for the higher grades, and then this is the meeting house that uh, in 1910. The UN also invited Quakers to aid Palestinians, mostly in Gaza in 48, after the expulsion of three-quarters of the Palestinian population of, of the 78% of Pal- historic Palestine that uh, Israel claimed as its territory, and pushed people in neighboring countries into Gaza and into the West Bank. Um, Quakers did that for two years, and then they realized that Israel was never going to let the refugees back. And so they put the responsibility back on the UN because they felt it would just be enabling an injustice to the Palestinian refugees, that they couldn't go home to their farms and their businesses and their homes.
2: Um, And
1: Quakers have been visiting and seeking peace. These are three examples from different decades of AFSC publications of trying to find a way that there is peace and equality and justice for everyone who lives in, in what was once historic Palestine. And then this; these are our trip leaders. Um, and I just want to do a shout out to them. I mean, Max did a great presentation webinar ahead of time before we went on the trip in June. Um, and and both of them have been going Max since 1970 um, okay. when he taught for two years as a conscientious uh, objector as alternative service at the Ramallah Friends School. And they've gone back and they've brought Uh, just they have so many relationships in Palestinian and Israel. So I want to do a total shout out. If you're thinking of ever going to Israel and Palestine, this is the couple to go with um, on the Friends United meeting trip. Uh, We would be walking along the street in the back streets of uh, uh, Ramallah and people would come up in cars and roll their windows down and go, Max, Jane, <laughs> and then there would be a lot of chatting. They 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 know so many people, and we were able to stay in families' homes that had Guilford students. That Jane and Max are sort of the U.S. parents for when they come to Guilford College. Um, and this is also a, you know, this is maybe taking a little time, but Max's great aunt and niece. He just did a great. Anise did a great book about her time from, I think, 1929 to 65, teaching at the Ramallah Friends School, and then being asked back after the military occupation to help the school navigate, how do you run a school under military occupation? And their daughter, uh, Maya, has written some amazing things on the history of nonviolent resistance against the occupation. So these are just pictures when we went from Tel Aviv, you know, the the separation wall, and I just I was surprised at this uh, red sign, in that we were going into Area A because Oslo divided um, the area of the occupied territories in A, B, and C. C is the largest; it's about sixty percent, um, at least of the West Bank. And that's under complete military and civil control of the Israelis. Area B is under the military control, and it's a, a smaller, but has some civil from the Palestinian Authority. And Area A are the few big cities. Um, so it's not contiguous at, at all. But you go, as you're going from uh, Jerusalem to Ramallah, is that this is dangerous. Israeli citizens are, forbid, are forbidden by law to go into area. A, And the unfortunate thing is that that means that many Palestinians only know Israelis who are occupying soldiers or often fanatical and armed violent settlers. So they don't have a lot of first-hand experience a lot of people don't have a lot of person with the Israeli peace movement and, um, and so that's something that needs to be worked on. And if you've never been to the Ramallah Friends School, it is an oasis and it's beautiful and there are these uh, sort of posts all over talking about the key values of friends that guide the school. So we met with the head of school. This is the clerk of Atlanta friends meeting, uh, giving the head of school, Reyna, um, a, a beautiful quilt. And it was just very welcoming. And we had dinner. And now we're getting into the part where we were experience, you know, experiencing questions about, is it a apartheid? And our fir- first big meeting with Shadi Corey. And some of you may be aware of him. He's a student at uh, Ramallah Friends School. He was abducted in his home in East Jerusalem by, I think it was 40 soldiers coming in in the middle of the night. And this is a common experience for Palestinian children. Um, The family was held at gunpoint. Um, His grandmother was there, his parents, siblings, and he was taken outside in the middle of the night in his underwear and beaten and then he was put in administrative detention. They didn't have uh, charges against him for the longest time and then he was finally charged with vandalizing a car uh, during an anti-occupation demonstration. He claimed he didn't do it. The faculty certainly didn't think he did it and his his grandmother and parents were nonviolent political activists against the occupation and and culture, Palestinian cultural arts um, and so they feel that that's part of why he was attacked he finally got charged he's had sometimes in prison the 15-year-old that was the 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 witness against him recanted his testimony completely on the stand said I don't know Shadi, I've never seen Shadi. I did not witness him damage the car. I was pressured and intimidated and and beat up in order to provide false testimony. And we talked with Shadi and he was just this lovely young man. And somebody in the group asked him sort of how he kept it together. All this time. And he was also moved to a prison in North Israel that his parents didn't have a permit to travel in Israel, so they couldn't visit him. So he was all alone, beaten once for singing a Christian hymn to keep his spirits up. But we asked him, and he said, and this was very poignant, well, I got off better than George Floyd. We also asked him kind of what kind of work he wanted to do. And it was soul crushing when he said, I used to want to be a human rights lawyer, but now I think the law is just a lie. Um, so um, the, the other talks, but he was, he was well supported by his family, the school, uh, supported him. And he said his his faith in God um, did it. He also talked about his experience. You know, it's like, it wasn't unusual. He knows many Palestinian kids who have this. And when we got back from the trip, uh, about three weeks later, Save the Children Foundation did a report back on these abusive Palestinian children by Um, the Israeli Israeli authorities. Um, About 500 to 750 children are taken in the way that Shadi was every year. Many of them aren't charged. They're just held in endless uh, detention. And then these are some statistics from the report, a graphic that sort of does it of, of how many of the of the, pe- the kids that they interviewed, what their experience. 16% hit with guns and sticks. Uh, 70% or 69% reported being strip search. 42% injured, including gunshot wounds or broken bones, and Shadi had broken bones, um, beaten after detention. Um, and 65% re- uh, arrested at night, which is sort of part of, you know, sharing the, you know, spreading the the terror of you cannot even be safe in your own home. So that was on our mind on the first night that we were there together. And, but we woke up hearing gunshots about a mile away and three or four explosions. And it turns out there was a house demolition very close to the lower campus. And so we went to the lower campus that day. This is the the principal of the lower school. And she was informing us of what she knew. And she burst into tears because her son had been in the restaurant underneath um, where the the apartment that was blown up. Um, and there were about like 100 soldiers with rifles. There was shooting in there before they set the explosions and her child was uh, hiding underneath a table in this little restaurant and finally came out and put his hands up and said, I'm a Christian and I just wanna go home. And there were guns trained on him and the IDF soldiers said, run, run fast. And he ran and just hoped he wouldn't be shot because some people were shocked. We then went to it to the house demolition. And so you can see the Coca Cola sign is where the restaurant was. Um, and the other thing the principal said is that when she was crying is this just there's just so many stories like this. And so here we are in area a Ramallah. And This is common that if somebody's picked up, suspected for a crime and and like a violent crime, which uh, the, uh, and this is where the family lived of the person who was picked up and suspected of the crime. um, They call up the Palestinian Authority and say, we're gonna do an incursion into, into your area remove your police and security forces from the neighborhood. And the way the PA is structured is they do that. They don't protect Palestinian citizens very well from these armed incursions. So 100 people came in, there were shooting um, and then they blew up this house which, you know, was the the with the family's house. And this is the delegation just talking with neighbor people about what they had seen and what they experienced. Um, and there's some rocks here that were thrown at the soldiers. And, you know, the kids don't feel like the PA is going to help them. And so it's kind of a David and Goliath moment. And then here are kids um, cleaning up the blown up apartment. And I find this very beautiful as they put out a plant for everybody in the neighborhood to see. And there's an Arabic word, Samud, which means steadfastness or resilience. And just like we're here, we're going to stay here. um, And we're going to make the best we can of it. We met up with journalists um, who, of course, um, the, the men on the right, I think, Asraf, if I'm pronouncing his name right, is like an old family friend of Jane and Max's. And I think he was a graduate of the Ramallah Friends School. And he described the whole thing about house demolitions, which are very, very common, that anytime a suspect is picked up for uh, what is considered terrorism or, or, or doing something like that, it is routine policy to blow up the family house, which is collective punishment and illegal under international law. Um, he talked about uh, he talked about two journalists were shot, one in the stomach and one in the head. The journalist in shot in the stomach um, was in okay shape, the person in shot in the head. We'd never, I think, found out. Maybe Max knows and and Jane knows that you mentioned, but he was in the ICU in critical condition with brain injuries. And then the Palestinian press is often targets. We walked back to campus and we went by this monument for Shireen Abu uh, Akhla who was assassinated by the IDF when she was in full press uniform. And a number of Palestinian journalists have been killed. Now, a next important thing, and this is a very hard story, I'm putting kind of sort of front-loading the the violent parts of the story, is we went to Hawara. And for those of you who haven't heard, but many probably have, in February of this year, after the new Israeli government, the most extreme right-wing, openly racist, where ministers have been um charged under Israeli law for being terrorists, um, um are now key ministers in the government in defense, and then Smolterich, who's finance but also is in charge of the settlements, describes himself as a fascist homophobe. And uh and uh, is in charge of illegal settlements in the in the in the West Bank, and we went to this town because in February there was a pogrom that I think about 250 settlers marched into town with battalions of uh, IDF soldiers protecting them, and they were shooting into buildings. They started homes on fire. They burned cars. There were cars, and they were terrorizing people. And we talked with the the, the, the mayor and the, the woman who's speaking here was sort of the public relations person of, of the village. And they told us the story, but the woman broke my heart the most because she talked about the impact on the children and the fear and how even if their house wasn't burned badly and it was able to be fixed, they didn't want to go home because it was such a scary place. Um that same day we were going to go to Janine, but it was the first time in 20 years that there were rocket attacks paid for by U.S. dollars on uh, a refugee camp in Janine. Um, and uh, a lot of the the, the weaponry and stuff is, is bought by the money that's given to Israel, bought by U.S. Uh, military things. And so it was just unsafe to go, Janine. We went close by to Nablus, uh, which is, was on edge, you could tell the city was on edge. Um, And you, tour, I told us about the, this Palestinian prison that imprisons many Palestinians on the behalf of um, the state of Israel. And there's a sign here, which I just think we need to know Israel, is that a lot of people do not feel that they are protected by the Palestinian Authority, and there are armed militias. Then there were certain part of the old cities in Nablus where there was here. And at one point, our guide said, we have to go. <laughs> and we, we left the old, old city. It was just a very tensioned um, time. Uh, one day later, this is a highway that we went by, and a gas station and convenience store we went by after the attack on Janine, Two Palestinians killed, four Israeli settlers, uh, and a settlement um, is really close to here. It's, um, uh, you know, I don't know the exact motives. I think there's a possibility it was sort of retaliation. Both of the Palestinians were shot and, and killed um, as to you know to protect harm from additional um settlers. The next day we met um with Mustafa Barghouti. with and there's so much to say about this guy. I I he um is the head of the Palestinian Medical Relief Society, he is a doctor. Um He also started with Edward Said, um, a a new political party. He's definitely against Hamas. He doesn't support the Palestinian authority. And he told us that the the polling suggests about 20% of people in Palestine have some sympathy for Hamas. About 20% have sympathies for the Palestinian Authority and the Fatah party that dominates that. But 60% feel incredibly unrepresented. And he's trying to build this new party, even though there haven't been elections since 2006. Um, But he was also a medical doctor. And in terms of this question of is it apartheid and does this need to be addressed before everybody can be secure is As a doctor, he told the story of if you're if you get cancer in the West Bank, there's no cancer treatment available. You would have to go to a hospital in Jerusalem that requires getting uh, Israeli permits to do it. Um, And and so I think he said that 40 percent of the people are declined. They're just not allowed to go to Jerusalem and go to the hospital. The other 60%, which is good news in that it's at least a majority, can go under very strict conditions. And they don't go anywhere but the hospital. Um, And they have to pay four times as much as Israeli citizens who go to the same hospital. And so I think you can make the argument there's two different kind of law structures for the people from the Jordan River to the um, Mediterranean Sea. Um, He was interrupted while we were meeting with him with phone calls. And it's unusual to have a meeting where the person who's speaking and answering questions is picking up the phone calls. And this is an example of a picture of him. And after about the second or third one, he said, I'm sorry for the interruptions. We keep getting reports of more and more retaliatory violent settler attacks on Palestinian towns because of the two gunmen that were killed that killed the four um, Palestinians. And he said, we've heard from 50 Palestinian communities so far that have been attacked in kind of Harara-like attacks by armed settlers um, who were protected by IDF forces. Frankly, I thought he was speaking figuratively, just meaning a lot. Reading in Heretz later that night, 85 different communities were attacked in just one day by violent settlers. Ah. So that's in response to violent actions on the part of the Palestinians. We went to visit the Taminis in a small village um, and they are have a long history of doing nonviolent resistance to the occupation um on our way there, we hit a flying checkpoint. There's about six hundred official checkpoints in the tiny west bank where where um you know it's just really slow in getting through, but there's also flying checkpoints where it just happens. This was near. Uh, 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 just a few days before, IDF soldiers at a flying checkpoint started shooting at an unarmed Palestinian family in a car. Everybody was wounded, and a two and a half-year-old child died. Um, and this was on our way to the two Tem- We our, our guide took us out of this, and we went uh, back way, and then we visited these people. Um, the, the the wife uh, was unsure about whether we should come because she had been in a demonstration protesting the killing of this two and a half year old child, and been uh, hit by an Israeli soldier on the face with the butt of the gun, and and was in pain. But they they uh, the hospitality was great, and so Nerman and Basil had us in their home. And they were talking about the story of the nonviolent resistance that they had been doing for decades in the Nabi Saleh village, which is only 500 people. Um, And now there's several illegal settlements all around their village Um, and the settlements took over their water supply. Um, and so they've been protesting, getting their water rights back, and weekly marches to the the water source. Um, all, non, uh, all all nonviolent action. Twenty nine of the five hundred people have been killed by snipers, either soldiers or um, settlers, during these nonviolent protests. Um, everybody in the Tamini family and many people in the village have been in prison multiple times. Um, Basil, <clears throat> he had <laughs> he'd been in prison nine times and in the 90s, he was actually tortured, not just in prison. And so repression against you know violent self-defense or offensive violence is very harsh the repression against nonviolent resistance to the occupation is very, very harsh. Um, and I had a good time talking with Basil because uh, he he is a close reader of, um, you know, one of the major theorists, Gene Sharps of nonviolent action. And he knew about the group I worked with of, the International Center on Nonviolent Conflict. And so you know we, we had some good talk. but they were they were they were really passionate. Some of you may have heard about their daughter who, uh, I guess in around two, seven, 2017, uh, slapped an Israeli soldier in front of their house. Um, and he had just shot her cousin in the head and caused brain damage. And this is his mother trying to stand between them. And then this young teenage girl slaps, and it was photographed and um, videotaped. slaps the, the soldier. The interesting thing that goes to the question of is this apartheid, the soldier never got charged with anything for shooting her teenage cousin in the head. She slapped a soldier in great frustration and, and anger and anguish, and she had eight months in prison and everywhere we traveled, we saw in in particularly in b and c lots of settlements um, and I, on the left is water tanks in Palestinian villages, which get filled up a couple times a week, and that's the water you have available. Whereas in the settlements on the right, they're hooked up to the water lines from from Israel and use about, at least in some settlements, it's more 20 times more water than the Palestinian villages and towns around it, Um, the overall The the lower end of that is three times as much water and access. And there's just a difference in the buildings and the living conditions. Um, And there's segregated roads to get there. um, And it's a segregated um, community. So I do want to talk about going to the 10 of nations. And this is where Max and Jane were going to go in October to help with the olive harvest and couldn't because of the events of October 7th and afterwards. Um, It was a beautiful place. I think it's close to a hundred acres on the top of a hill. And we met, um, you know, one of the key members of the Nasser family, and he told us this story in the old cave where, you know, his, his sort of grandfather, when they bought this, is they registered, they bought this land and registered it under the Ottoman Empire. So that was before 1918. Then when the British mandate took over, they went to the office and they registered uh, it there uh, in uh, after 48 when the state of Israel came in and then Jordan was taking care because this is outside of Bethlehem. It was the administration of the remaining Palestinian territories. He registered it there and then in 67 after the military occupation in, in Israel then controlled all of historic Palestine from the river to the sea. Um, He's still in court. He's still in court trying to get um, a a registered land title. And because he's in Area C, he can't connect up to the water grid. So they just rely on their wealth. Um, They can't Connect up to power lines, so they run completely on solar power, and they can't get building permits to add new buildings. And, you know, there's so there's the violence, but there's also the different rules of what's possible. And I love this. um, This is uh, the sort of memorial garden, and this is to Bishara Dahar. uh, uh nasur who i think was the first person who owned owned the land and it's you know uh, a a quote from from the bible about their commitment to nonviolence, and they run this organic farm and they have volunteers and do programs for um, children this is an example of a program on the left And then this is looking at one of the uh, compost toilets out on one of the five Israeli settlements on the hill around them. And he told us about they have burned his crops at different times. They have come on his land with guns and said, God gave us this land. You don't have this right. And he's just struggling to keep the farm and have international uh, attention and volunteers. they oh, they blocked a road. I guess I didn't have a, a thing the by the settlement, so we had to park and then go over a barricade and then walk about maybe a half mile to get to to the farm. But they have back roads to get their produce out through um, Palestinian villages, but they're not allowed to go out the main paved road um, near the settlements because those are are more segregated. And this is probably getting really long. Uh, Yes. So I'm going to start powering through. But I just want this family we visited in, in a village where the husband grew up in. And this house, you'll notice that the second floor is very incomplete. Because this is Area C, and they were told that they didn't have a burning uh, a, a building permit. And if they added one more brick to build the second floor, the whole house would be demolished. Across the road, they said their neighbor's house had been demolished five times, and he just kept rebuilding it as sort of uh you know, uh civil disobedience. I'm just, you know, it's it's my land. I have a right to build a house. But that's just the kind of in area C, which it's not just military control, it's civil control. And there's very few paved roads. You're not allowed to get permits to do that. And you could sort of tell when you moved from area C to area B because all of a sudden you'd be on a paved road and then a little later it'd be unpaved and that's and that's area c and um, we had great talks with them, and they told us many things that were were quite moving she uh, Majida is a mom of of uh, a a Guilford student that Max and Jane are are being sort of the US uh, surrogate parents for. And so it was, it, was, it was great to be with him. And they got, we called their daughter um, during this time. Jane hooked us up. Um, and she talked about that she understands why some young people in Palestine think that violence is like a good way forward, but that it makes her feel ashamed. Um, And she just wishes that it would be different. She also talked about she would accept a two state solution, but her, her most heartfelt desire was someday to get to a single democratic state that would include Jews and Palestinians with complete equal rights and laws that applied to all of them rather than separate laws. And one person said, Well, what would you call this single state? And she laughed and said, Well, I don't know, Israelistine. Um, and she, the hospitality there was was lovely. Uh we met with Sam Bashar, who's a business person who's become very active, and he gave us a real sense of the limitations of everything has to be permitted by Israel to do anything. And he worked a lot on um, telecommunications um, for uh, the the Palestinian territories. Uh, Was a wonderful man, very funny, but told some excruciating stories. And these were just, as he talked, he just kept bringing out more and more permits that he had to get. Uh, and the amount of red tape and how that really interferes with uh, business development and and being able to move around. Um, And if people have more questions about some specifics, we can talk about it. But it was real eye-opening that it's not just violence, but there's just so much administrative red tape where there are just different laws depending on whether you're Palestinian or, 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 or Israeli. We had a visit with the prime minister and we pushed him hard. He was a good guy. He, I guess, is friends with Max and Jane because Max and Jane, of course, know everybody. Um, uh, but it was, a, it was a good talk. And he was, I think, a pretty decent guy that was in a very tough place. Uh, But at one point he said, you know, I don't believe in violence, funerals beget funerals. And then a Methodist minister who was with us said, um, well, from your lips to God's ear. And the guy laughed and and, and he said, well, you know, here, it's a local call (laughs) to God. And then I just wanted to point out meeting with Hanan Ashrawi and like Mu- Mustafa Bergudi, I think this is these are kind of the leaders who are the best possible person. And she was negotiating a peace deal in uh, the, the 90s in an open uh, international confab and wanted to solve the problems and the PLO went behind her back and negotiated the secret agreements of the Oslo with a completely different strategy of we've just set up an administrative framework and then five years down the line, we'll try to resolve the actual issues. And she had had worked with the PA for a while but left because she thought it was corrupt and undemocratic. And so she's working with civil society and is a uh, proud graduate of Ramallah Friends School. And it was fascinating talk with her, so insightful. And there really are some great leaders um, who are trying to do good work um, in the area. And then we went to Jerusalem and spent time in Israel. Um, I'm over time. So I think we may be at a point where we can, I would just be adding evidence about why this adds up to um, apartheid, but I'll just do some quick things. The first Palestinian woman who is ordained as a minister in all of Israel or Palestine, and she was an amazing woman, but she told this story. About Her family had to move in 48. They were pushed out of their town and they ended up in uh, East Jerusalem, which became occupied East Jerusalem. But she said something that that I thought was interesting about that her family to this day has a go bag ready in case that they're pushed out of where they live now within Israel. And I have to admit, I said, well, I understand since that family's history was pushed out and ethnically cleansed uh, from what became, you know, out of their village, um, I could see why they did. But it seemed like an exaggeration. But that week in Harret's, There was the Israeli newspaper, there was a report about Netanyahu who said in a ministerial meeting, private, but they they got sources for it, who said that 20 battalions of IDF soldiers have been trained to go, and here's the quote from Netanyahu, all out war against the 20% of Israeli citizens who are Palestinians. And in, in they just have the plan, and the soldiers are trained. And so someday it might be possible that she and her family is kicked out yet once again. So, And we met with a Jewish-Israeli photojournalist who was very left-wing, very opposed to uh, the occupation, thought it was apartheid. Um, was very, very critical of Hamas. Uh, and this is in June before that. And, and you know, was prescient about the real problems with that, as I think. Um, and she was wonderful and told her experiences. She was out that day photographing a phenomenon that's increasing with Orthodox Jewish young people walking around the old city and spitting on Christians. And we met with... Uh, a very, a woman who's both uh, a sort of an orthodox rabbi of a feminist uh, synagogue, but she's an educator. And we were asking her, she is very much opposed to the current government, opposed to the occupation. And she feels that it's rising to the level of apartheid. And then when we went north to the kibbutz, And as a kid, I always wanted to be live for a year on a kibbutz. I think they're an incredible social innovation, and there's so much to learn from. And he was in Israeli special forces. He also really was pretty adamant about how much he hated the government and the religious fanaticism and putting, um, creating policies that made uh, Israel people less secure. Um, he though, as we talked with him, he had real anguish about there's no military solution to keep Jews safe, and yet there needs to be a defensive capacity. But he said there has to be a political solution. He made a distinction between Palestinian terrorists and the larger civilian population who weren't, and that there had to be some sort of deal. But I don't think in talking with him that he would describe it as um, apartheid. It was very poignant when he took us to the children's house on the kibbutz and then down to the children's bomb shelter, which had been used in 2006 and probably has been used since October 7th because Hezbollah in Lebanon, who is just right there. The hills of Lebanon are just right at the border of the kibbutz. And so they've probably been there. And it just increased my sense of, we have to find a long-term peace with justice solution, because nobody can be fully safe until that happens. And then we went to a very inspiring Israeli community that started in 67. And it is an intentional village, where 150 families, 50% of the families are Israeli Jews, 50% of the families are Palestinian Israelis who have decided that they want to live together, and they want to live together as equals. And they started the first integrated school. Um, The school system in Israel proper is completely segregated. Um, and they did it. In, they did it. It was a private school uh, for their village, um, and there are now seven schools that are integrated in Israel. And their school was the model for much of this. We and you know, I thought this was interesting. A map of the village, and then one of the symbols. Of, of the Palestinian flag and the Israeli flag in in one symbol about the, the unity that they were trying to create. And the town had a Palestinian Israeli mayor and she was very gracious with her time and gave us a tour. Um, the interfaith worship, the, the Quakers here will like this. She said, so they have Christians, uh, Muslims and Jews many of them secular, but a lot of them religious. And so how do they have a religious space? And so they create this sort of Bucky full, uh, uh, Fuller, sort of dome-like space. But she said it's very much like a Quaker worship where people just quietly pray together. And it's so it's it's interfaith. And then we met Rabbi Steve uh, Bernstein who uh, one of our members of the delegation, a Methodist minister, um, had been in touch with. And he lives 10 miles from this village called, in English, Oasis of Peace. And he had never been there. And so he came and he was part of the delegation. We had lunch with him and he was active in the, opposing the judicial reform and the pro-democracy movement that was so major for a long time until until October 7th, when there was more we have to pull pull together and the judicial overhaul was taken off the table. But we had a talk with him about different kinds of Zionism, what he loves about kibbutz life. Um, and I asked him if he thought the situation was apartheid. And he said, no, he said it's unjust, certainly, but I don't think it rises to the level of crime. But when he talked about it, it was because he was only talking about the internationally recognized borders. He wasn't saying, okay, Israel essentially more or less, but has fundamental control of entire historic Palestine. And so if you add that, so, you know, he, he, that was an, uh, an interesting perspective. So I'll just leave you with this. is This is one of our last nights with the delegation in a lovely uh, bar, which of course Max and Jane knew the owners and they came over. Um, uh, but w- there was a lot of discussion as what is ours to do back home we talked a lot about the apartheid free communities and which is uh, an interfaith network of congregations and community groups that's administered by the American Friends Service Committee that is saying no this is apartheid we need to solve that in order to move to peace with justice in, in the long term Um, Some of us have kept in touch with each other and have had discussions and a little bit of email um, about the current situation, and I just want to reiterate the sort of four-point program that I think many of us agree with, which is ceasefire now, release of the captives, restoring, and these major uh, international Quaker groups have, have said this is the program. But all of their statements have said, but we need to go deeper. And from our experience, we think it really does mean figuring out a way to um, end the occupation in an apartheid state and figure out a just peace um, in this tiny space of the world. And so then there's what my suggestions for like how to move forward are, are, you know, this is this is just since sort of October 7th of how do we move forward now. Um, I think, I think it's really important to stand up for respectful dialogue, and free speech and democratic debate, particularly after I was in a capacity auditorium today at the Montgomery Montclair Public Library, where seven, maybe 25% of the audience were standing up and screaming at me and and uh, trying to interrupt and, you know, calling me an anti-Semite for the information that I presented um, and that it was nothing but hate speech and lies. And um, So, I, and there's a lot of repression right now for people who are trying to speak up for uh, Palestinian rights as part of the long-term solution. The second thing is I think It is so charged right now. We need interfaith, Jewish, Muslim, and Christian unity to oppose both anti-Jewish bigotry and anti-Arab, anti-Palestinian country. Um, The Washington Interfaith Network, which uh, the Friends Meeting of Washington is is in part, uh, is focused on, like, local organizing around justice and housing issues, but they had to bring their people together um, about three weeks in after October 7th. And we didn't all agree, but we had rabbis and imams and lay people and ministers um, sharing prayers in Arabic, in English, in Hebrew, singing songs together, and saying, whatever our differences, we do agree that equality and social justice is imperative and that we are skeptical of the the myth of redemptive violence is gonna get us very far towards peace with justice. And that was a beautiful moment. I cried all the way through that, Uh, you know, 100 people in the basement of a Catholic church. I also think it's really important to protest and lobby for better US foreign policies around the three immediate de-escalation. And I just want to do a shout out to groups like Jewish Voice for Peace, if not now, and the Center for uh, Jewish Nonviolence. They are taking such a brave leadership role. They are losing friends and family to do it. They are trying to deal with the grief because they lost people on October 7th. Some of them have people who are in Gaza as captives, and they're still going, but that does not justify the collective punishment of what's happening to 2.2 million Gazan um, civilians. And so they hold so much, and they're doing such creative work. And I really, you know, for Quakers and other Christians who are on this, it's like I really think we need to have their back um, and be really supportive and engaged on that, because um, there's a lot of hostility to to them, as I saw earlier this afternoon. Um, and I I think having consider your congregation or organizations you're part in to look at whether you want to be involved in the Apartheid Free Communities Network. And here's the pledge. And it may be controversial, but I think it's worth thinking about your congregation or your organization. I don't think it's that controversial to say our commitment is to freedom and justice and equality with a focus on Palestinian people who even Obama said, you know, their lives are intolerable. Um, but also bigger for all people. And that includes Israeli Jews. We oppose all forms of racism, bigotry, and discrimination and oppression. That's really so important because these things are interconnected. But then we declare ourselves an apartheid-free community. And then to that end, and this is where people will have to really discern together whether this makes sense for them, is we pledge to join others in working to end all support to Israel's apartheid regime, um, and you know the settler colonialism and military occupation. It's not the only place in the world, but it's the place where the US taxpayers give about $4 billion a year to keep these policies in place. And now, given the war against Gaza, um, Um, I think the Biden administration is pushing 14 billion extra dollars on top of that. Um, And so we have a lot of work to do And the US has a real big role to play. And then they suggest some, uh, you know, apartheid free, there's where you could go for that. I think people should really take a look at Jewish voice for peace if they don't know, because there's a lot of, sort of slanderous and libelous things that are being said they're being demonized in many parts of the US Jewish community, Um, but they're a pretty amazing group. And I think it's worth it. And I wanna do a big shout out. I encourage you, whether you're Quaker or not, you could go on the, the trips with Max and Jane and benefit from the contacts they have and their wise wisdom and their care, which was just beautiful um and so I wanted to put max's um email up, and then you know, if people want to dialogue further, have disagreements, have questions beyond our time here um i'm I'm totally willing to chat with people, and you can contact me from email. And just a a plug, this is the Pendle Hill pamphlet I did in 2017 about my own journey from being sort of an unquestioning Zionist to becoming more concerned about Palestinian rights and thinking that there's no real good future for Israel until there's really equality, freedom, and and justice for everyone between the river and the sea. And with uh, that we can just open it up to questions and I'll stop sharing my screen. I'm sorry that went over long. It's hard to put three of the most intense, gut-wrenching, inspiring, and heartbreaking weeks of your life into a one-hour presentation. But thank you all so much for coming in the organizers of this and it's great to speak to a lot of New England Quakers because in my heart (laughs) I'm still a member (laughs) of Putney Friends Meeting and love to go to annual sessions and Max and Jane it's so beautiful to see that you're here and to see your faces thank you so much for your ministry and your gifts
3: Thank you, Steve.
0: Yes. So there are a couple of comments in the chat, which you might like to read. Um,
1: Can you read out sort of comments or questions? Because my eyes aren't great and I don't want to be spinning with my face down.
0: So I see a couple of hands. Um, There is. a question. Uh, there's some comments, but then there's also a question. I'm, I'm convinced, but why does it matter so much whether we label the deeply oppressive system apartheid?
1: I think that's a great question. My thoughts are this. Um, I think it's important to bring, because as I said in in the presentation earlier um, in Montclair, I am pro-Israeli, I'm pro-Palestinian, and I'm pro-human rights. And the human rights groups around the world who have been looking into this say that the legal definition of apartheid is a really good frame. You know, other people have different names for it, so there may be some places you'd want to do different things, but I think it gives us a common framework that's embedded in international human rights law. Um, And if it's accurate, which I think it is, um, you know, given the international civil society doing Pressure on South Africa not to disappear as a country, but to reform itself and be more just and democratic. Um, I just think that, you know, that was a successful struggle. So by talking about apartheid and knowing, even though South Africa has a million and one problem still, but it made this big leap uh, to, uh, you know, a more inclusive. Multicultural democracy. And so there's, I also think by labeling it apartheid um, to the degree it's accurate, which again, I think it is, it also has that echo of a historic long term struggle that made a major breakthrough for human rights and, and freedom and reconciliation of communities. Oh.
0: Thank you. Um, so I think I'll go to a hand, um, Bill. Yeah,
3: uh, in South Africa, it took a Hugo, uh, sorry, Hendrik von der to uh, create uh, connections between de Klerk and Nelson Mandela. I don't see that person uh, clearly in Palestine or Israel. but it is interesting that uh, one of the people that uh, has been trying to do that is Ali Abu Awad, who was originally uh, a militant and ended up as making a commitment to nonviolence in his about uh, 20, I think, 20 years ago. Uh, it would be very interesting to know what more has come out of it, out of that uh, strain. And mm-hmm. just one, uh, yeah, Ali Abu Awad. Uh, Great, Tal- I'm Tal- not familiar
1: with that, so thank you uh, for that. There is a, a Jewish Quaker from Canada who wrote an amazing book interviewing hundreds of Israeli anti-occupation activists and hundreds of Palestinian anti-occupation activists who had both committed. To nonviolence. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of the book. I think it's Palestinian-Israeli and Israeli resistance against the occupation. So it's a big, thick book, but it's just story after story. And in it are many people who, um, like, it's understandable that the Jews wouldn't want, uh, who were fighting against the occupation, wouldn't want more Jews harmed. And so their nonviolence. Was was obvious, but they're they're moving towards understanding the the unjustness of the situation and wanting to create a future based on justice was very very moving. Um, a number of the people who were interviewed who were Palestinian, it's sort of obvious why they'd be against the occupation but really nuanced things about people who had been engaged in armed struggle groups, some people who had placed bombs in different, in different places going, there's just no future in this and switching to nonviolent resistance is their focus. And, you know, it's it's always in flux, but I think, you know, the combined resistance through nonviolent action for a common goal of freedom and justice for all from the river to the sea, um, however that's formulated, one state, two state, uh, whatever, is is something that we need to nurture, even as our biggest task is focusing on US foreign policy as an enabler. in major diplomatic, financial, and uh, sort of propaganda ways to keep the current status quo in place, which is not going to provide um, justice and security for anybody in the long term. We have to move away from the status quo is is my belief. But thank you for raising that individual. I want to look into that more.
0: Yeah, thank you. Um... So uh one from the chat. Um they're asking that you repeat your four the four program points. Oh. Is there is there a place they can go to find those written out more or less like that? Yeah.
1: So there's a joint statement made by AFSC, the Canadian Friends Service Committee, Friends Committee of National Legislation, the Quaker UN Office. Uh, Quakers in Britain and Australia um, and you can get this on the website at the AFSC it's this joint statement and they sort of laid out the three immediate goals and and as as working for through protests and lobbying to move our country to support and then they talk somewhat about but long term you have to deal with the the oppressive conditions for the Palestinians and create more equality and justice, however that's done. And I spent most of my time in the presentation because of the trip trying to understand what is the level of oppression that we have to deal with and what is the nature of it. And they talk some in, in there. Um, but anyway, the four things, ceasefire, uh, release of captives uh, and restoring full humanitarian aid to Gaza um, are the sort of the immediate things. And then the fourth demand or or intention to move on as 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 people of goodwill and faith is to try to understand the political dynamic where there are relations of. Uh, you know, oppressor and oppressed, even though um, the Jewish community has historically been so harmed by Christian antisemitism, by discrimination, by the pogroms in Eastern Europe, and then the rise of Nazism, certainly, but also by the supposed allies who weren't allowing enough people To escape their situation because of their own anti-Jewish, and I really understand a lot of the motivation for um, Zionism is just you can't trust Gentiles; they let you down over and over and over. You need a a space that you can defend, Um, and it hasn't generated. You know, it's a mixed blessing at best, Um, but I. I think we really need to understand um, there are some real good reasons why um, Jewish folks in Israel and even in the diaspora don't have full trust that Gentiles will have their back. And so I think that's one of the reasons we really have to commit to justice in Israel, and Palestine and to fight anti-Semitism and Islamophobia at the same
0: time. Um, the link to the uh, joint statement, which was issued on or about October seventeenth, is yeah. in the chat. Thank you, Arnie. Yeah. So, Stephen,
2: your hand. Uh-huh. Up. Thanks, Chris. This is Stephen Houseworth from North Carolina. And um, toward the end, you had a slide where you were talking about your suggestions, but I can even piggyback this on the me- issue of trust you just brought about, which is to say that throughout your talk, and your persona is one of empathy and uh, caring and deep understanding. I-, I would think, and it's been my experience that even before any of those suggestions come about, what's crucial and primary is first to recognize what people's experience might be. And here we have um, matters of personal trauma and or generational trauma that folks have understood. And unless that's recognized, people don't hear anything else. So I'm wondering if you could comment on that experience and how to go about best recognizing People's experience. Thank you.
1: Well, bless you for that comment. Um, I think that's key. I'm still learning, um, but it's why I did sort of the unity thing at the be- at the beginning of what are our common assumptions right? and and how to open our hearts to the suffering of both peoples. And then, you know, my thought is then look at the challenging thing of the oppression of military occupation and creating an apartheid uh, regime. Um, but I I think empathy is so important, and I don't necessarily know the, the the right order. I'm sort of, what's the phrase? I'm building the road as I walk in my ministry and trying to listen to people. Um, Today, I was shouted at a lot at the afternoon thing. But some people came up to me afterwards, and we had great talks. An IDF soldier who grew up in Israel came up and said, well, I agree with about 90% of what you said. But I really don't like this 10%. But we had this beautiful talk. I gave him my card. I said, please contact me. I would love to have a dialogue with you. And so I'm I'm just trying to figure this out and be as open hearted and share my experience and my shifting understanding over time. Um, I think in some venues, I would do less of a presentation and more of a workshop, which is really interactive. And people have small group time and some silent time and some prayer or meditation to just sort of ground themselves and be able to extend into empathy. If I had more time, I would, you know, talk more about di- different things and spend more time in the stories of the the Jewish Israelis and the, you know, legitimate and concerns and fears and, you know, not sure they can trust Palestinians given the some things. So I think it's a gross question. I don't have a great answer. I just think we need to keep trying and figuring it out and experimenting and listening to the feedback even when it's hard to, to receive.